thanks everybody for joining me again. This is another episode of the Purple Nights podcast. Tonight I'm joined by accomplished jazz musician and founder of Jazz for Peace, Mr. Rick Delarada. How are you doing, Rick? Good, Chris. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Great to see you too. So I'm just wondering, um, could you tell us a little bit about your background as a jazz musician and also um, why you're inspired by Prince? Well, um, you know, I, I, uh, I grew up with all forms of music. I really just want, I was very happy to play the music. I would have been happy to just play the music that you hear on the radio because I liked a lot of that music so much. I like bands like the Beatles and, you know, all the Chicago, all those groups that we were growing up with, you know, in the seventies. And, uh, but, um, I was kind of exploratoring. I was exploring the piano in, in the house, uh, that I was growing up with on my own. My parents ended up, um, you know, wanting me to take piano lessons with a classical music teacher. So now I'm bringing that into the mix. And then as I'm, you know, listening to all this great uh, music that just I was hearing as a kid that, you know, the people in the neighborhood listened to and all that, I started to come across with some just tremendous musicians that were, you know, you'd hear within this music, you know, uh, you know, when I started to get to people like, let's say, Yes, or Emerson, Lake and Palmer, I started to notice that these guys were like, whiz kids on the keyboard and just could play amazing things and stuff like that of course uh you start getting into all kinds of grooves and funk was you know really great stuff uh to to when, when that started coming into play and all that and um at some point or other i started to get into jazz kind of when i discovered it by accident in a library so now i've got all these things rolling and along comes this musician who, to me, it was almost like the second Stevie Wonder type of guy. Because, you know, when Stevie Wonder came around, it was like, here's this, like, this prodigy genius kind of guy who would play all the instruments on his albums. You know, some of his albums he'd be, like, playing, you know, Stevie Wonder on the drums. Stevie Wonder doing this, Stevie Wonder doing that. And here comes this guy, Prince who takes it really just takes the baton and starts running around the, the, you know, the marathon, whatever it is, starts running with the baton of that kind of one man, you know, force of nature, freak of nature, kind of, you know? So like Prince is like, you, you, I'm just getting a vibe from this guy who's like in a basement doing it all. You know what I mean? He's like, he's singing his brains out. He's composing, he's playing and he's a high quality musician. And he's just, just like this package to me, it was an unstoppable package. You know what I mean? It was just a wonder kind sort of situation. So naturally, um, you know, I, I, I started to get a vibe like, man, this guy's a serious presence. And then I end up in a movie theater with, you know, just all these regular people watching, like, his movie, you know, Purple Rain or whatever. And I'm like, man, this guy's really, um, you never know what he's going to do next. You know what I mean? You just never know. He might be in a movie and all your friends might be there. Because a lot of times as a musician, you're admiring the music on your own and hoping you'll turn some friends onto it, you know? I know I used to, like, have 
uh, kids over because we had a swimming pool in the backyard. I bring them over to go swimming and we play some of their favorite, you know, tunes, wherever, whoever might have been the Almond Brothers or the Doobie Brothers or whoever, some brothers or some sisters. And I would sneak in some Chick Corea Return to Forever just to see what would happen, you know, would it fly over their heads or whatever. But, you know, Prince was a musician of this high caliber, but able to like, you know, you know what I mean? Like that, that everybody could identify with to some form or other. So he had this, you know, just this tremendous, uh, he had, you know, he had, a, he was a tremendous force and he was really on the cusp of almost everything at, at one time for a minute there, you know, before the things that we're going to talk about, you know, getting sabotaged by your label, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you as a jazz musician, I think could really, vibe with Prince and respect Prince just on the fact that he could play so many genres and so many different forms of music uh, from jazz to funk to rock and roll to everything in between. You know, he has, it's been said, you know, in the fan community as well that he has a song for every taste. So it's, it's really unique and it's gratifying to be able to have a podcast to talk about a a musician of that caliber. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about your organization, Jazz for Peace? Uh, do you offer grants to uh, to uh, budding musicians and stuff like that? Is that what you do? Well, yeah. So, so uh, basically, uh, so what happened with me is I embraced all kinds of music, as I was telling you, and I started playing in all kinds of bands. Now, jazz became kind of something I felt like I, I had to, you know, you get to these situations where it's like you, you, you have to make a, a choice because you realize there's only, you know, whatever, however many years on the planet and there's just too much music to, you know, to experience. So I was thinking, okay, I'm definitely going to keep exploring the jazz idiom, but while I'm doing that, I have these skills and I can play any kind of music and I enjoy playing any kind of music. So I'm playing with all kinds of bands, you know, big band music uh, from the Artie Shaw Orchestra, touring with them, uh, you know, uh, uh, R&B type of flavored music uh, as a you know the keyboard player for the Platters, um, you know, jazz. I was the opening act in MC for Dizzy Gillespie. And then what happened was I get to the point. Yeah. So then I get to the point where I come to New York and um I was doing gigs. Uh, this was kind of cool because it was like no one can afford to do New York. That's the whole thing. It's like everyone's hanging in there trying to figure because, you know, it's such an amazing. It's kind of like those antelope. Well, uh, this is a, this shirt is from Africa. And this is a story that I was in the Mara with these African guys taking me out there because I was helping indigenous people. And uh, they point to all these antelopes and they, not antelopes, but they were, uh, they were like antelopes, the really fast ones. I forgot, gazelles. Oh, so they, yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they see that gazelle over there. I say, yeah, he just won a fight with all these other gazelles to reach the point where he can mate with these women. You know what I mean? These female yeah. gazelles. And I and they said, guess what he's going to do? And I said, what? He's going to chase those gazelles without food, without water, without eating, without stopping, without catching his breath. He's going to try to mate with as many gazelles as he can until he literally drops dead. And then the next guy who wins the next battle is going to run in and try to do it. So New York is almost like that because you're coming here to like grasp everything, but you're trying to survive at the same time as a musician while you're 
in the trenches of jazz. You know what I mean? You're hanging with the cats. You're going to the jam sessions. You're you're playing these. You're playing with people in little apartments, stuff like that. You know. But your gig at night could be on a Broadway show. It could be here. It could be there. Um, for most people, it wasn't. But for some, you know, right now, like like last whatever X amount of years. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that um, uh, while I'm doing that. I start getting these gigs as a piano bar entertainer in Norway, in Sweden, in Japan. And I'm going out and singing now because, you know, in New York, they know of me as a serious piano player. But over there on these gigs, it's like they don't want to hear me. They don't want to hear any piano. Then I just want to hear the piano to accompany the voice. So I'm doing those and I'm coming back with a boatload of cash. And now I can do whatever I want in New York City. You know what I mean? I don't have to worry about making the rent. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Like I don't have to worry about making the rent. I got the rent. I got the rent for a long time because <laughs> I just came off of this thing for four months or wow. whatever. Sweden, yeah. And I come back and I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to like hang and do, you know. But it got to be like polarities. So now I realize I have to record as a leader because I've got to put it all together. Uh, you know, I, I'm on a gig, I'm either singing too much and not playing, which is the piano bar circuit, or, um, you know, uh, not singing at all because I'm accompanying someone, the singer in the band, you know what I mean? Or I'm on a really cool gig with some horn, you know, some uh, great saxophone player, his sideman or whatever, but my originals aren't being, you know, you know what I mean? I'm not. So to put it all together, I started recording my own records. And as I started recording my own records, that led to me traveling all around myself as a leader. And from all of this touring that we've talked about, the combination, I realized that, you know, mu music could heal our world and solve our problems. This is just something that, because, Chris, as you know, it cuts through every barrier that mankind has in front of us. You know what I'm saying? It really does. It really you know, does. Like, let's say two people can't speak the same language. I can play music and connect with that person. Right. You know what I mean? And then right. not only that, even the art form of jazz itself is spoken in these different countries because it's embraced all over the world, you know? So you've got right. music and you've got jazz that's doing it. And then you also have, it, it crosses religious barriers. It crosses racial barriers. It crosses, you know, creed and cultural barriers. Every kind of barrier, you can kind of melt those differences Music just right. melts the differences between people. So right. after 9-11, I started Jazz for Peace as a way to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, we can we can come together if we have the will. If we have the will, music has the way. That was my feeling. If you have the yeah. will to pull, yeah. you know what I mean, to, to come together and in a positive way and cut out all this craziness, uh, music has the way and jazz for peace can specifically can specifically get to that way by uh, three things. One was an educational series that brings music back into the schools. Two is an instrument donation program that puts an instrument in a person's, uh, you know, in a child's hand, whether he has the money or, or not or whatever. And three is the um, benefit concert series, which you're alluding to. And this is something that anybody can apply we will work with them to get them approved and it basically is a world-class cultural event at no cost to you plus 
the staffing and the expertise and the guidance to make the event a success, a success so that we can do all of these things. Now, I'm going to say an artist because you specifically mentioned artists, but you could also think of this as the Red Cross or Habitat for Humanity, people that have also been grant recipients, right? If you're a, if you're a musician or you're the Red Cross, you need to expand your fan base. So we need to do that, but we also need to reward those fans you have. So th these are things that Jazz for Peace works with, with the grant recipient to do. You also need to get sponsors at the local level. So we work with local businesses to get them involved in the event. Then you also need, you, you're under-publicized, you know? So we need to make you more publicized with publicity and awareness. We also need to grow your fan base and help you get new and prestigious supporters. And most importantly, not most importantly, but very importantly, um, help you raise funds through numerous different fundraising techniques that we share with uh, the grant recipient and then imply depending on which ones we think will work the best, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very cool. And Rick, while you were talking, I was, I was thinking, you know, the power of music is very, to me, it's a very spiritual thing. And I've talked before on this podcast with other guests about the, the spiritual dimension of music. And in my experience, there's no other art form that comes close to tapping into uh, spirituality and that whole uplifting vibe that music is. So it's great that you're using jazz for peace to help these musicians and help them along and help them, you know, get started and really prosper. And it's, it's a really great thing because music not only brings people together, it lifts people up and puts them in touch with their, you know, their higher spiritual selves. I really believe that. And, uh, yeah, it's great work that you're doing. And I believe that, you know, arts in general in schools are, are facing a hard go of it. And it's nice to have like your organization, Jazz for Peace and organizations like Save the Music that are, that are fighting to keep music in schools and keep people aware of the value of, of music education. So I really, applaud the work that you're doing with jazz for peace and people can check that out at jazzforpeace.org right that's correct jazzforpeace.org yep okay sounds good to me and um since i have a jazz musician on i don't i don't often get the the pleasure of of hearing music played but i thought before we went any further, I thought maybe you could play us a little something. I'd be glad to. So what this what I'm gonna do today, I do something unique for every for everybody, really, so that you know other podcasts can check each other out. People at another podcast can come to yours and from yours go to theirs, etc. Uh so this is gonna start out with the Jazz for Peace poem that we were talking about that started Jazz for Peace. It was really a poem that started on 9-11. And I'm just gonna freely improvise underneath it. Then I'm gonna continue to make make something up completely off the top of my head. And I call this little thing Free J.A. And this is kind of a tribute to freedom of speech in general, but also uh, journalists, you know, the, the, uh, the, the need to make sure that journalists are doing, are able to do their honest job 
uh, reporting on things, especially things because, you know, you, you get these horrible situations with war and so many, it's such, it's so bad for civilians. And I, I don't, I want to make sure that, you know, journalists are not persecuted if for reporting on uh, those things, because we, we have to make sure that we, we do not, you know, bomb civilians and do crazy things that happen during wartime. So that's called free JA. And that's just going to lead into um, a little, uh, a little bit, a little excerpt of a song called Antonio's song by Michael Franks. And when I started, people started hearing me sing. They used to always say I sounded like Michael Franks or Chet Baker. I don't know if I will today or not, but that's who they would say. And the cool thing about this song is it kind of brings to light the problems that we're having uh, with our environment, uh, you know, the rainforests and, and, and stuff like that. And um, it's funny. I just heard from some people in Nepal today. And um, I this was a, a song that I actually... Uh, sang in a concert that I did jazz for peace in Kathmandu, Nepal. So that's in Antonio's. Wow. Okay. I hear jazz for peace.
Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Rick Delorado, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, yeah, we're talking about Jazz for Peace. We're talking about Prince. And uh, Prince did some forays into jazz. He wasn't a proper jazz musician, but he dabbled a little bit in all genres, as I alluded to earlier. And Perhaps the most uh, jazz-heavy material that he ever recorded was under the moniker of Madhouse, which was actually just a two-man effort. It was him and saxophonist Eric Leeds um, did, uh, I believe, three Madhouse albums in the 80s, but only two were officially released. And Rick, I know I sent you two uh, two tracks, one from the first Madhouse album, one from the second Madhouse album. And I just was wondering, what, what were your impressions of those tracks and Prince and Eric's musicianship on those tracks? Sure. Now, uh, now the interesting story is Eric Leeds is the brother of someone on Prince's team, right? Someone on Prince's team had a jazz musician brother. Is that right? Something like that? That's yeah. what I read anyway. Yeah. Well, Eric's brother was Alan Leeds, who was actually Prince's okay. tour manager. There it is. Tour and manager. Actually, 
Right. Was was actually before that was actually tour manager for James Brown. Right. So that was that was the first thing I noticed. It's like, wow, you know, he, he's got this tour manager who's a highly experienced tour manager, as you said. He had, you know, been a tour manager for other heavyweights. And he is he says to Prince, Hey, my brother is this jazz musician. And uh, you know, it was like they weren't it, it was like a little bit of trepidation there at first because you know. Uh, you know, Eric Leeds is not really coming from, you know, Prince's, the other side of Prince, you know, so much, but they end up connecting and then they do this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting now that the two cuts specifically, one was called four and one was called 12. Interesting record because they're just, they're just all numbers. All the, all the tracks are different. You know, there's 13, which has this really badass groove. Um, and, uh, yeah, killer groove. Uh, But, but four starting with that one. The first thing I noticed was the snare drum because you hear a snare drum like that. Um, you're not going to hear a snare drum on any other of Prince's music mic'd that way or just recorded that way. It's like, it's a snare. It sounds like a blue note snare drum for like a blue note recording, the snare drum. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. Sounds yeah. like a snare. Yeah. To me, it sounded like a snare drum from a classic, a classic jazz album snare drum. You know, so that was the first thing I was like, wow, that was interesting the way they recorded the snare drum. So the fact that jumped out at me. Uh, but the other one was um, it was kind of like <clears throat> it was blues influence. So it wasn't a blues form completely, but it was like half of a blues form. And then they kind of branched off into like, you know, uh, the other half kind of like more of a fusion type of thing. So it had some fusion, jazz fusion elements. And the other thing that was wild was the bass on that is like, like virtuosic type of bass stuff. And I guess that's Prince playing the bass, I'm guessing. I mean, you said it was the two of them mostly doing the stuff or what? Yes, yes, yes. So yep. Prince apparently just was all just playing this, you know, almost like it was, it was, to me, it was a cross between Jaco Pastorius and um, uh, Clark, I think, no, wait a minute, his name is Stanley Clark. Stanley okay. Clark from, from Return to Forever, you know, almost had that kind of virtuosity on the bass. So it was, there was some, this virtuosic, virtuosic elected, uh, electric bass sounded to me like it was fretless too. Um, and it was this almost blues thing, kind of. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that's what I picked up on that. It had these different elements um, uh, to it. And it was kind of adventurous. I, like I said, there was these little adventurous sort of things. There's a couple of adventurous little keyboard parts in it. But the bass is especially adventurous. I mean, it's not like, you know... It's not like a laying down a funk line on the bass. You know what I mean? He's very, he's playing all kinds of stuff on the bass. Now, the other song, the other song, 12, actually is a blues. You know, that is a blues form for the most part. And what I noticed is they were, it seemed to me that Prince was interested in capturing not so much the improvisational aspect of jazz, but the, the, feel and uh, spirit of the jazz era, so to speak. So this song 12, to me, it's coming out. It's like, first of all, it's jazz dance music. You know what I mean? It's like, it's it's really catered towards dance. You know, I mean, 
you listen to this track and you're not no so much hearing, you know, a great improviser or whatever, you know, that you would hear that, you, you know, maybe the, the, you know, the jazz aficionados are going to listen to, but it's the jazz that these improvisers play through in order to make a living. They play dance gigs, you know, and right. you can almost, I mean, you, you feel like you're at the cotton club for a lot of that song. You know, you feel right. like you're at, the, you're at the cotton club in Harlem and you, you know, these girls are just swinging you know, the, 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 the pictures that you'd see from the day. It right. really, there's like, it has, it captures the nostalgia, honestly. Right, right. It captures a nostalgic feel, a nostalgic jazz dance feel. And it has also classic things. It has like a, a little kind of a shout chorus. Uh, you feel a little bit kind of the Chitlin circuit. You feel big band in there, that Leslie organ, you know, um, you know, from, from like the Chitlin circuit. Because yep. there used to be, you used to be, in those days, you used to be able to tour and the, all the key, like an organ player would tour and there'd be all these rooms that had organs in them, like a Leslie organ in the, in the club. And they bring in different, or like Jack McDuff and these organ players would go from one city to the other and they wouldn't have to, you know, bring this giant organ every place they went. At least in those clubs. Right, right. So, well, that's it. That's interesting. The flavors and the the elements that you picked up on, and I could I could tell already, Rick, just by hearing you talk, that I I have a lot to learn about music. So I'd like to talk to you sometime outside of the podcast and just uh, pick your brain a little bit about some of that classic, you know, jazz and blues music because it's very it's very interesting to me. But uh, yeah. Um, two great tracks and the the madhouse stuff is is pretty good i'm more of a i'm more of a lyrical music type person so um instrumentals i i don't want to say they don't grab me because they do but i tend to gravitate more toward lyrical music but uh maybe i need to uh expand my mind and expand my palette a little bit more but um yeah, the Madhouse, the Madhouse stuff is certainly very interesting and a very uh, there was done in a very prolific era for Prince. That 1985-1986 era was very, very prolific for Prince, and uh, Eric Leeds was a a fixture in Prince's bands for for much of that time and even a little bit afterwards. So yeah, very interesting stuff. And and I know Ricky also wanted to talk a little bit about Prince's battle with Warner Brothers because it sheds a little light on how um, Prince was forward thinking in terms of how the music business was going to change and evolve through the years. And he was very... Uh, prescient as far as you know seeing into the future and seeing how musicians would be compensated or as a matter of fact there would be lack of fair compensation and representation for artists and Prince was able to see that and fought for his independence as an artist uh, and I know you wanted to speak a little on that so what would you like to well, say about that? 
Well, that see, so now after, I, I told you, here I am. I, I find out about this guy Prince, and he's so talented, and he can do all these things. Like I said, kind of a force of nature, playing all these instruments himself on some of these tracks, and you know, coming out with some great hits. I mean, you know, just classic hits. I mean, little, you know, tunes like Little Red Corvette and things like that. That you know are you know uh, what could you say? They're timeless, you know. But at the same time, uh, you know, he's a complete artist. And here he is, you know, getting these kind of record deals that artists of his stature don't so much get. I mean, normally you're just the singer songwriter or something like that. Maybe you have a, a, a stretch where you get deals like that. But now you're bringing someone. So his I mean, this is like something that's it's like it doesn't mix. You know what I mean? Because the first thing the 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 company wants to do is simply cherry pick. They want to minimalize, you know, they want to get the most bang for their buck. And they just want, you know, Prince to uh, give them one or two songs that are given. Just give them a couple of little red Corvette type of songs. That's all the, the labels looking for, you know, right, and Prince right. wants to develop, you know, he wants to develop his artistry. He wants to develop his music. He's got all kinds of ideas. And, you know, he was prolific as, as we know now, from all these things that are in the vaults that never got released. I mean, there's so much stuff that he's recorded. So, you know, he's in this horrific situation where, you know, I mean, he's competing against other like total pop stars when he's got all of these other uh, talents that are not necessarily going to compete on that level because, you know, you're not like, like you're saying yourself, you're not going to have, um, and the audience for an instrumental music that you're going to have for, you know, certain types of pop music, et cetera. Um, so I, you know, a big battle ensued with the record label. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but I can just imagine, um, you know, it took a lot out of him. I imagine that he could have easily been isolated, you know, when you're like a star, but you don't, you know, you like, you're, you're not one of the guys anymore, but you're one of the guys in spirit. You know, there's all these, there's all these, all of these um, uh, traumatic sort of conference conflicts, you know, these conflicts that arise between artist and label, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, towards the end there, uh, you know, the situation where he had that issue with phenytol, right? I mean, apparently he was on a bicycle trying to get phenytol late in his life shortly before you know his passing which was another tragedy right yeah yeah for uh, sure you know it just made it 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 makes you really wonder i mean we what we think you know see the thing is in our minds we think oh wouldn't it be great to have this or that or this record deal or, or these millions or this that and the other but you know we don't really realize what it actually ends up being, you know, sometimes it can, it can be problems that you never dreamed of, you know, uh, conflicts that you can't resolve. And, um, uh, I think there was a person, um, there's an interview of that guy who had all those hits, Rick Astley, where he said at the height of his fame, he was suicidal. He was literally seeing a psychiatrist for it because he was having suicidal tendencies you know, at the height of his fame, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, you know what I mean? It's just not what we think it is. I think Rob Lower, one of those guys, um, could have been Robert Downey Jr., someone said, but, but someone said, I wish everyone could, you know, get a major record label and sign a deal or become a great movie star so they can see 
how that is not the answer in terms of your own happiness, you know, your right, own, right. you know what I mean? Right. I mean, and that's where Prince said in a, in a interview in December of 1999 with Larry King, he said that he had to search deep within himself and decide whether money and fame were more important or, you know, spiritual health and growth. And he chose, he chose spirituality over fame and, and, uh, and fortune in terms of, you know, importance in his own life and in his own heart and soul. And I think there's a, there's a, you know, it's a slippery slope, right? Because being famous, you know, you get recognition and you get, you know, fame and adulation and all that. But when it comes down to it, what does that do for your humanity? You know, it, it isolates you, it frustrates you, uh, it limits you in a way because you're not able to live authentically and true to yourself. Um, you have to keep up this image, this persona, you know, that the label puts on you or wants to market you as you know and i think that was prince's main issue with the label was that they were they were holding his artistry back they were holding his his um, ability to um produce you know art they were holding it hostage so to speak right um and uh I think that was Prince's main issue with the label was they were, they were, you know, he likened it to, you know, of course, being an African-American man, he likened it to a form of slavery, which right. was controversial at the time. And it's still, you know, controversial to think in those terms today. But as an African-American man, I, I get that that's where he would you know that that would be the prism through which, he would see that. Um, and then towards the end of his life, he was finally able to get the rights back to his own, his own masters. And that was huge for Prince uh, in 2014 when he got back with Warner Brothers. But the whole, the whole struggle with his label was about, um, from, my, from my perspective, it was about artistic freedom and freedom to, um, you know, create, you know, unfettered, unbound by any, any restriction or any, any, uh, you know, imposed belief of what an artist should be or how they should, um, act, you know, according to a, a label or, you know, a PR team or how, whatever you want to say. Um, what do you think about that, Rick? Well, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> you know, just so I don't forget, I wanted to say, you know, a couple of really, just to get an idea of, of, of the level of his artistry, a couple of interesting things were his cover of Betcha by Golly Wow. Yes. Holy Jesus. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, yeah. I mean, you know, when you can cover uh, somebody else's song, 
And like at that, you know, just it's mind blowing, really, what he did yeah. with that, with that, with that tune. And it's a great tune, but he like nailed it. You know, I mean, you know, you can you can do somebody else's tune, but that doesn't mean you're going to do the kind of justice that he brought to that song. So it's an incredible yeah. cover. And then you know that the solo that he took in uh, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps," where he just you know blew the house down. You yeah, know, yeah. Tom Fetty yeah. and all those guys. Uh, so you know, I mean that. I mean. You know, if you want to hear the kind of music, you know, the kind of of the level of musicianship that he was at, you know, check out that, you know, those those are two those are two things to check out anyway of a, of a, of I'm sure a large handful. But back to this, I think what happens is, you know, uh, the label is, it, you know, it's a corporation, it's a monster, it's a separate entity, it's you know, and they're looking to create something of you that they sell to the public. And then what happens is you find out that you, the public is adoring something eventually that's not you. So now you're, right. the public is liking something, but that's not you. And you can't get out of it. So now you're, you, what you are is trapped. You're like captured. You know what right. I mean? And right. the Elvis movie actually brought that up about the situation yeah. with Elvis, you know, yeah. because yeah. he wanted to do these other things and he wanted to go in these other directions. And, you know, they're like, no, 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 we, you know, this is, we, we want to sell, we we're selling, you know, we're selling this Mickey Mouse version of Elvis, you know what I mean? And yeah. then, you know, you're, we're going to, we're going to make the, we're going to make Mickey Mouse sales by selling you as a caricature kind of thing, you know? Right. Right. And, you know, and, and, and the other thing was, you know, Prince was, at a time when I started to notice myself, greatest hits albums coming out of bands that like were still alive, they're still breathing, they're still young. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. here's Prince probably in his 20s. I don't know. He couldn't have been, he couldn't, he definitely wasn't out of his 30s. And a greatest hits album. And even Prince himself is quoted as saying, you know, you put out a greatest hits album when you either die or you want, or you want the artist to die. You know I mean? That's like, it's the last thing. And that's what they're, and so he's on like his third album with Warner brothers and already they want it to be a greatest hits album because they think that's what's selling now the greatest hits of everybody. But you know, that's, that's basically a past tense right. release. You know, that's not even a current release, a greatest right. itself. So imagine, you know, what you would feel like if you're him and the label's telling you, here's your next album, your greatest hits. You know, almost like we're retiring you. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. And so how do you how do you dodge all of those things? I don't think you can without a certain amount of aging and maturity, you know, I mean, I, at this level where I'm at, I, I kind of study philosophies like stoicism. Um, I've even said it on a couple other podcasts because I, I do want people to check it out. If you're going, if you think you're going crazy, try to study what, you know, some of these teachings of this guy, Marcus Aurelius, who uh, basically just wrote all these, scribbled all these little notes and he never meant to publish it and they found it. And then there's these other guys, Epictetus or whatever, that also were similar and they put them all together and they call it so fun. But it's a way for you to cope with some of these things because otherwise, you know, you are you could end up going crazy or you could end up, you know, turning to drugs as an escape for emotions that can't really be 
They can't. I mean, I see Prince as a person who got caught up in, who got caught in situations where there isn't a proper human emotion to describe the feeling that you're having. You know what I mean? The the heartbreak. You know, I mean, you know, you're, you're being turned into a, a dead figure or a figure that is not you anymore. But you're, they're asking you to like that. You know, and this happens with a lot of artists. Um, an example that I was thinking of just recently is, for example. The Mississippi River, you know, is drying up, supposedly, you know, I don't know if you heard about it, but, you know, the Mississippi River, which is one of our great rivers, and it's drying up. And, you know, if it really is drying up, which it may be, because from what I've seen, I mean, if, if things don't turn around, we could lose, you know, this is like America's greatest river. Is there really an emotion that fits that? No. But what they're doing is what the article will do. The article will say... Yeah, the Mississippi River is drying up and that's causing a problem for, you know, boats to move their products. So in other words, Kellogg, Kellogg cornflakes or Rice Krispies might have lower profits because they can't get their cornflakes. So now you can have a human dwell. Oh, what a shame. You know, this multi-billion dollar company is going to sell less Rice Krispies. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a human emotion you can fit to it. But the Mississippi River itself drying up, there isn't really an emotion that fits that because it's like, it's an unbelievable, it's a, it's an, un, you know, unfathomable tragedy, right? Because it's, right. it's, it's part of American culture, American history. I mean, our studies of a, everything, you know, the Mississippi River has been running, you know, it's, it's not right. something we can fathom, you know, and so this is what I think happens to artists who get famous and how the hell do you deal with that? Because, you know, your 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 time is going on. Uh, uh, the audiences are identifying with something that's not you. And you have to somehow, you're changing yourself. And also, you can't unring the bell. So if you get famous, you can't say, well, you know what? I don't like this. I don't want to do this anymore. You can't do that, Chris. Right. right. That's tough. That's tough. Right. Because right. I'll tell you personally... Uh, it's funny because these people wrote to me today from Nepal. I was in Nepal and for some crazy reason, I was famous for like one day there because I was traveling around Nepal. Everything was fine. They were taking me to the people I was helping and all that kind of stuff. And I was with them and nobody, but then the concert happened and I was like, I wonder what kind of concert this is even going to be. I don't know, you know, what this is going to be. And it was downstairs in this large hotel that I was staying at. And I just walked down there just to peek around. It was like hours before the event. People were like coming up to me, wanting to take the selfies and grabbing me and all, you know what I mean? Like, like, like as if I was Prince in America, you know what I mean? Right. In the eight. Really? Right. Yeah. And I'm like, what was that? So I, why, I somehow made it through all of these selfies and this and that and like, oh, and I made it back to my room. It was like, that was surreal. You know, that's like, what the heck was that? You know? And when I went back to the concert, you know, when the, I had to, when I had to go down, cause we're getting ready to start the event. Um, you know, it was happening, you know, I, I was ready for it now, but it was like, it was the feeling of being famous, but like just for, uh, you know, just like, um, a dosage of it you know what i mean right, and i'll right. tell you something man i would not want to i i wouldn't know how to deal with that i wouldn't want that because you can't go outside you can't go anywhere yeah you know what i mean 
I mean, your yeah. privacy is gone. You can't, and you can't undo it. You can't say, oh, I've decided, you know, right. no. You can't unring the bell. Right. So that day I was like, you know, because there were, the concert was sold out and there were people outside. So it, it's, it's a country, you know, it's not like, it's not like America or whatever, you know, it's not like, oh, there's no tickets, I'm gonna go home. No, the people were outside the place they were, it was an event. They were, they couldn't get in, but they were outside having the event, you know, right, the event right. was going on in their mind outside. It was jazz for peace. And I went to go to the bathroom because there were these other acts, you know, that were on the thing. And I, I couldn't, wasn't going to sit through all of them. And someone looked at me like, you're going to, you're going to do what? I'm just going to walk out and go to the bathroom and come back. And they looked at me like, you know, Oh, do so at your own risk, buddy. You know, like that look, you know, yeah. And I'm like, what? Are, I don't know. These guys are strange looking at me strange. I'm just going to go to the bathroom. Come, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what they're thinking. And I opened that door and, you know, and I couldn't, it took me 45 minutes to get to the bathroom. That was not, that was two minutes away, you know, and another hour to get back from the bathroom. And by the time I get back, they were waiting for me on the stage to start my second half of my show, you know, the, or my, my final, you know what I mean? So yeah. it was, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't tell you. I, I don't, I don't know how I would survive that. I don't know how I would survive if that was on a daily basis. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I've always viewed, you know, fame as, as something that's a little dangerous for the exact reasons that you're saying is you can't, you can't go outside, you can't do normal things, you can't be yourself, you can't relax or let your guard down or let the you know let the superstar persona down you know right any, any minute of any day and it's it, you know so i always say like i talk to people about this podcast yes i would like to be i would like to be known i would like to be respected for what i do but i i certainly don't want to blow up you know, in a viral way, because that's when things really get crazy. And like you say, you can't unring the bell after that. So, so I'm kind of walking the fine line with these, this podcast of booking great guests, you know, musicians and producers and engineers who have worked with Prince. And it's always a joy and a pleasure, but, you know, I worry at the same time about getting too much exposure. So I kind of like the uh, the fact that I'm, you know, semi-anonymous. I'm known by a, by a group within the Prince fan community that, you know, really support me, and I really appreciate their love and support. But I think, you know, achieving fame is not why I do this podcast. Why I do this podcast is out of respect for Prince and his artistry and also respect for other musicians and people who have been impacted by his work and are carrying on his efforts of of charity and music education and things like that, like you're doing, Rick, with Jazz for Peace. Thanks. Well, what I also think is cool about what you're doing is you're giving people a chance to also learn about Prince from other angles. You know what I mean? Right. Because all most people have is, you know, what the TV said or, you know, what they saw in the 
gossip column. You know what I mean? Whereas you, you, you know, you, you hardcore fans have a much deeper dive into, you know, him as a human being, as an artist, etc. Much more personal. Right. Right. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate your, uh, your coming on the show and I appreciate your wonderful music that you shared with us. And again, that's jazzforpeace.org. Go there, check it out, support it. I'll be posting the link in the description for the podcast. So be sure and check that out. And before I let you go, Rick, where can, where can we find you online and on, on social media and all that? Well, one thing I tell people is um, because I know with you, there's going to be some musicians watching, you know, uh, watch your podcast and maybe people that are connected to outstanding causes. And, you know, what someone can do is, you know, when they watch your podcast is say, hey, you know, I saw you on Chris's podcast or and then I watched a couple other things or I went to the website or I, you know, Googled uh, Jazz for Peace, et cetera. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I'd like to know more about what you guys do, these these events, how you put them on, how you help outstanding causes. You can send an email to us at info at jazzforpeace.org and just send us an email. What we do is we call that a little seedling. And we, you know, when someone becomes a grant recipient, it grows into a tree. Right, right. So, well, thank you very much for spending time with me today, Rick. And uh, I wish you tremendous success and tremendous goodwill. And thank you so much. My pleasure, Chris. All right. For myself, on behalf of myself and Rick Delorada, I'd like to say thank you, everybody, for watching on YouTube or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Blog Talk Radio. And until next time, peace and be wild. Thanks, everybody.